Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Thanks for the response, Dina. The rest of you people, come on. Hey, uh, so just a little thing about uh, Christmas Eve. So Chris, Christmas Eve is on a Sunday. Did you guys realize that? Pretty cool. And so we will actually have two services on Christmas Eve. The regular service in the morning, Christmas Eve in the evening. So coming to church twice in the same day. I know we find that difficult. You know, when I was growing up, I went to church Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday evening, three times a week. So, okay. Uh, to entice you a little bit, we're, uh, because some of our worship team is having, uh, has other commitments, we're importing a worship team all the way from St. Louis, Missouri, to lead us on Christmas Eve Eve. Uh, they're coming just to sing for us and to spend five weeks with me, my son and daughter-in-law. So we're excited about that. Michael, who was part of the worship team for since he was in high school until he graduated college, and then his wife, Ashley. So they'll be leading us that evening. Today is the second week of Advent. Does this sound right? It's like echoing or something in my ears. Are we Okay. Okay, second week of Advent, we did our candles, light showing forth in our candles, and it's the second week in our series, uh, the 12 reasons for Christmas, why Jesus came. Last week, the theme was Jesus came to teach and train, and under that theme, we saw not only the first reasons of the 12, the first three of the 12 for his coming, but also how those reasons apply to our lives. First, in review, Jesus came to be our example, and therefore we must follow his example. We must follow in his steps, and as we do, we too become examples to others. Second, Jesus came to preach the gospel, to proclaim the kingdom of God, and therefore as his followers, we too are called to preach the gospel wherever we go, to be witnesses for the Lord, to tell people who Jesus is, what He's done for you, and what He offers to do for all who trust in Him. And third, Jesus came to make disciples, and He commanded us to continue in that work, making disciples, equipping people to follow Christ's example. Now today we come to our second theme, Jesus came to obey. And under this theme, we'll again explore three reasons for His coming, as well as seeing how those reasons apply to us. But before we begin, I want to share with you another of my uh, Christmas memories. Last week, I told you about the Christmas tree wall in Thailand. You guys remember that? Okay. But this week, I'm going to go back in time uh, some 50 years This story, therefore, because it's 50 years, is going to be based on a true story to the best of my recollection. I was around 9, 10 years old, and it was a few weeks before Christmas. My parents had to go out for some reason. This meant that my brother, 7 or 8 years old, and I would be home alone. Christmas movie reference, get that? Oh, good. Uh. Now, before my parents left, they repeated the standard pre-Christmas command. You know what it, what, what it is? 
Yes, don't look. They weren't under the tree yet. Don't look for your presents. And of course, as soon as they were out the door, I began to search for my gifts, right? I mean, that's just what I did. And eventually, with the help of a step stool, I found some of them on the top shelf of my parents' bedroom closet. I don't remember what the gifts were, except for a couple of comic books. Remember, Batman was my example. So I had some Batman comic books, which I was pretty excited about. But suddenly, I felt a presence in the room. I turned around, and there in the doorway stood my mom and dad. I was caught, red-handed. And my parents were so distraught, disappointed, that they, at that moment, disowned me and took me to an orphanage where Frank and Judy Wolves adopted. No, just kidding. They didn't do that, but they did discipline me. When Christmas morning came, I didn't receive any of the gifts that I had found. I think they gave them to my cousins or something. Now, my point in telling this story is not just to share uh, my most traumatic Christmas memory, but to remind us of something about obedience and disobedience. Today we're going to talk about how Jesus fully and completely obeyed his Father in heaven. And we're going to apply that to our lives. We too must, we're commanded to obey our Father in heaven. But as my story illustrates, there's a problem. We often fail to obey. As children, we disobey our parents. As adults, we disobey God. And if we have good parents... When we disobey, there are consequences, but those consequences do not include being disowned, being thrown out of the family, and the same is true with God. The Bible tells us, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, but that loving discipline does not include a rejection. So today, as we talk about obedience as exemplified by Christ, I want us to be encouraged and inspired by his example not discouraged by our own failures. And I want to give us hope. I know hope was last week's theme. Probably next week I'll talk about peace. I'm, I'm behind a week. Uh, I want to give us hope. I want us to see that because Jesus came to obey, that those who trust in him, those who submit to his will, those who are changed by him, can and will grow in obedience to our loving Heavenly Father. Amen? So now we come to the first of three reasons Jesus came to obey. They all just fit under this particular theme. I've numbered them, not one, two, three. Those were last week, four, five, six, so we can make it all the way to 12. So fourth, Jesus came to fulfill the old covenant. Okay, so I'm going to give a warning here. This is going to be deep stuff. And uh, I kept trying to shorten it, but every time I did, it expanded. So get, buckle up, if you will. This is fairly complicated. I mean, not complicated. It's, it's just deep. It's, it, but we have to understand it. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Sean talked about reading your whole Bible. And this is one of the reasons we need to read our whole Bible. We need to read, and we'll talk about the old covenant found in the Old Testament, because it prepares us for uh, foreshadowing here for the new covenant, which we'll also talk about in a minute. So Jesus makes this clear that he came to fulfill the old covenant in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This verse is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was just entering into his earthly ministry. He'd already had a few run-ins with the scribes and the Pharisees, the the Jewish teachers of the law, the, the experts, if you will. Therefore, some might have thought, because Jesus was in conflict with these guys, that Jesus was somehow anti-law, that his teachings were meant to abolish the law and the prophets. So Jesus plainly states that he did not come to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. So what does this mean? First, we need to understand uh, what Jesus meant by the law and the prophets. It refers to what we now call the Old Testament. The law, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, written by Moses. It contains most, there's some historical narrative in in those first five books, but it also contains the laws, the commands that God gave to his people Israel. The prophets refers to the, the following, the historical books, the poetical books, and what we call the prophets. And these books as well uh, are filled with many commands from God's people, stories, narrative, commands. So from our perspective, Jesus said that he came to fulfill the Old Testament. Now the Old Testament can, contains or has even been called the Old Covenant, A covenant is a formal agreement between two or more people. The Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, was the formal agreement established by God with Israel. And this covenant is recorded in the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. So Jesus came to fulfill the Old Covenant. Is that clear? The word fulfill means to make full, to complete, to accomplish. Now, I want us to see how Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant. And the first thing we should understand is that, in, uh, that, 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 that the central figure of the Old Testament, though not mentioned by name, is Jesus Christ. Jesus explained this to his disciples after his resurrection. Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets, Moses, the writer of the law and the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the scriptures, so the prophets, Moses and the prophets, all the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, the things concerning himself. So in one sense, Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant because it was all about him. It was all pointing to him. It was symbolic. It was foreshadowing of him. And I want us to see three specific ways this is true. Three specific ways that Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant. Again, this first part especially, well, that's not true. The, the third of the three is the deepest, but it's going to get a little theologically, so, theologically, theological. So, focus. Because as we'll see, this is important. It's not just Old Testament stuff. It's important for us. You have to understand the Old Covenant, and it's fulfilling if you're going to be part of the New Covenant, which we'll get to. So the first way Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant was by his obedience to it. He kept all the Old Testament, Old Covenant commandments, the law of Moses. He lived a sinless life. 
We see this prophesied even by the angel Gabriel in response to Mary's question about how she, a virgin, would give birth to a son. Gabriel tells her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The child, Jesus, would be holy, blameless, morally pure, free from sin. Unlike all other people since Adam and Eve, Jesus was not born a sinner. He did not have what theologians call original sin. He was born holy. And as the Apostle John, after Jesus' death and resurrection, would later write, you know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. We'll be talking about his. He appeared to take away sins in weeks to come, but and in him there is no sin. Jesus was born without sin, and he lived a sinless life. So first, he fulfilled the old covenant by living in complete, total, perfect obedience to the law. He, like no one before him or after him, did everything the law demanded. Then second, Jesus fulfilled the old covenant by fulfilling its prophecy. Theologians tell us that uh, conservatively, Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. But since we have limited time, let me, let me just give you one example, which specifically le- relates to this season of Christmas. Over 700 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah prophesied, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah prophesied that the virgin would give birth to Emmanuel, God with us. And on that first Christmas morn, Jesus became the fulfillment of that prophecy, as he would many others throughout his life and through his death. So second, Jesus fulfilled the old covenant by fulfilling its prophecy. And third, Jesus fulfilled the old covenant by his death on the cross. Under the old covenant, the children of Israel were given by God laws that they were to obey. We could go through, there's lots of them. We know the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not, you know, kill, commit adultery, shall keep the Lord before you, thou, thou shalt remember the Sabbath, all of those and many more. So God gave the children of Israel laws to keep But of course, like all people, they could not live holy lives. Therefore, God made provision for their sin. A major part at the heart of the Old Covenant was the priesthood and the sacrificial system. Because of their sin, Israel, through their priests, had to have, had to make blood sacrifices. These sacrifices were done in obedience to God showing their trust in Him. Blood, animal sacrifices, just to be clear. These animal sacrifices, however, had no power to take away sin. They did, however, show the seriousness of sin, and they foreshadowed or they symbolized the ultimate blood sacrifice that Jesus Christ would become. The author of Hebrews makes this, I was going to say clear, it's a, just listen, see what you think. Chapter 10, Hebrews, verse 4, For it is impossible, 
for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, the Old Testament. Then the author of Hebrews makes this comment. When he said above what we've just read, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Deep, powerful stuff. We could spend a lot of time here, but I just want you to see two things. First, that the blood of bulls and goats, animal sacrifice... Throughout the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, could never, did never take away any sin. And second, that there has only ever been one sacrifice that could and did take away sin. That was the sacrifice of sinless Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And through that sacrifice, Jesus completely and totally and finally fulfilled the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant sacrificial system. The animal sacrifices made under the law were necessary to demonstrate in advance the children of Israel's trust in and obedience to God. But they were only a shadow. Christ is the real thing, the fulfillment of all the sacrifices that went before Him. Let me be, let me be clear. If Christ had not died, the animal sacrifices would have been meaningless. But because of Christ's death... He filled them with meaning. He fulfilled the old covenant sacrificial system by becoming, as John the Baptist declared, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice his sacrifices were sufficient to take away the sin, not just of Israel, but of the world. In fulfilling the old covenant, the covenant that God made with Israel, Jesus opened the door to God for all people. Paul describes to a mostly Gentile church in Colossae what Jesus' sacrificial death meant for them. Colossians chapter 2, verse, beginning in verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus, by his substitutional, he substituted, he took our place, sacrificial. He had a substitutional and sacrificial death for all people. In doing that, he fulfilled the old covenant, which means for those who trust in him, both Jews and Gentiles, he cancels our debt, our legal obligation. For the wages of sin is death, Paul said. You get paid. What, what you owe for your sin is death. And Jesus cancels that. He removes the death penalty hanging over our heads. Jesus becomes, he became the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, fulfilling the old covenant sacrificial system. 
So let me review. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets, the old covenant, in at least three ways. By his complete obedience to the Old Testament law, by his fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, and by his death on his cross, on, on the cross, fulfilling, com, completing the Old Testament sacrificial system, filling it with meaning, giving it uh, teeth, if you will. And what this means for Israel, and for you, and for me, and for all people, is that we are no longer under the Old Covenant. Instead, we are under the New Covenant. As the author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, He, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Because Christ came into the world, because He died in our place, redeeming us, paying our debt, we are redeemed, we're purchased, we're set free from our transgressions. We're set free from our sin uh, that we committed under or, or even defined by the Old Testament law, the covenant of the Old Testament, a covenant mediated by priests and animal sacrifice. But under the new covenant, Christ is now our mediator. He bridges that gap between man and God. He is both high priest and the sacrifice for our sin. So that we who are called, as Paul, as the author of Hebrews says, are under the new covenant we can now receive our promised eternal inheritance in Christ. Now, what does it look like to be under the new covenant? Well, Hebrews 8, verse 10, we find this description. As I was doing this today, I thought, hmm, maybe we should, beginning of the new year, go through Hebrews. That would take years, though. So I'm thinking about it. You guys can pray about that. Hebrews 8, verse 10, we find this description. For this is the covenant that I will make with, those, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This comes from the prophet Jeremiah. Not a direct quotation, but it's, it's in there. He's prophesying to the people of Israel about a new covenant. They're at the time under the old covenant. He's saying, but there's a new covenant coming. A new covenant which we've seen, Jesus initiated. And this new covenant applies to all, both Jews and Gentiles, who put their trust in Christ. And under this new covenant, there is a new location for the law. The new covenant means God will put His laws in our minds and our hearts. In contrast to the old covenant, that was written on external stones, tablets, the new covenant will be internal. It's written on our hearts. For those who trust in Him, God does a transforming work in our lives. We need to get this and remember this. When we come to Christ, it's not just that we believe stuff. It's that we submit to His transforming work in our lives. And He changes us. He gives us His Spirit as a, as a deposit, as a guarantee of what's to come, and as, as a helper and a comforter. And as we submit to the Spirit's work in our hearts and minds, we are transformed. We become new creatures in Christ. 
We have new motivations and new desires because God is at work to change us into the image of His Son. Notice, however, that just because we're no longer under the old covenant, this does not mean, double negative here, this does not mean we're not subject to the law. We're still responsible to obey the law of God. That law, however, is no longer defined by the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. It's defined by the New Testament, the New Covenant. But I want to be clear about this. I'm not saying that uh, when you come to Christ, or when you're under the New Covenant, the New Testament, that you can just throw out, forget about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is still and will always be the Word of God. It should be read and studied and taught and applied. I'm also thinking about in the new, I'm thinking a lot about the new year, maybe some minor prophets, beginning the year with some minor prophets. What do you guys think about that? All right, Habakkuk, here we come. Hebrews, Habakkuk, we'll do it all. So it should be read and studied and taught and applied. So what I'm saying is that the Old Testament, however, needs to be understood in light of the New Testament. It needs to be understood based on the fact that it has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. One example that we already touched on is that sacrificial system. Let's go a little deeper with that. Under the Old Covenant, once a year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, I think, the high priest was to sprinkle blood, the blood of a sacrifice, on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. You know the Ark of the Covenant, right? Indiana Jones, you've seen the movie, that's the thing. So it was a real thing, by the way. Not the one in Indiana Jones, but the, the one the children of Israel had. So uh, once a year, sacrifice was made, the blood was taken into the, uh, the temple, into the Holy of Holies, sprinkled on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. It's called, it was called the atonement cover or the mercy seat. So there were three elements, if you will, involved in this offering that was to take away the sins of the people or symbolize, ultimately, the taking away of the sins of the people that would later be accomplished by Christ. So these three elements were the high priest, the blood of the sacrifice, and the mercy seat on which the offering was placed. And Jesus became, he fulfilled all three of these for us. He is the high priest who makes an offering for our sin. He is the sacrifice who shed his blood for our sin. He's the place of mercy where we find forgiveness for our sin. Jesus fulfilled every part, every picture in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And so as we read the Old Testament, as we read these, these pictures, they're filled with greater meaning for us who know the Lord and know that He's fulfilled them in our lives. This system, the sacrificial system, God put in place, not as some would think for salvation, but to look forward to the sacrifices of His Son. Again, the author of Hebrews writes, Chapter 10, verse 1, For since the law has, 
has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after every year, make perfect those who draw near. Every year, the high priest would go in, he would make this sacrifice. But it was, or it would have been, meaningless without Christ. It's important that we understand that the law was never, the law, the sacrificial system, the priests, was never a source of salvation in the Old Testament. The Jews before Christ were saved in the same way we're saved today. Based on the fact that God chose them and they placed their trust in His promises. Specifically, in His promise of a Messiah. Even if they didn't fully understand what, would be, what was coming, who that Messiah would be, they trusted in God. We see this way back in Genesis with the, the first Jew, if you will. And his name was? Abraham, thank you, thank you. God promises childless Abraham that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars of the heavens. And through his offspring, God promises, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. If you've been around long, long enough, you know that's pointing to Jesus right there. And in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, we read, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Paul goes into a whole thing about this in Romans chapter 4 that we don't have time for. But if you want more on Abraham, the father of our faith, being the first, the father of the Jewish nation and the, our father in faith, read Romans chapter 4. Abraham, the first Jew, was saved by grace through faith, just like you and me. And the same thing was true for all of Israel. They were not saved based on their attempt to obey the law. The law was merely a shadow of the good things to come. And these good things came in Christ. Because of Christ, the new covenant means that God can say, I will be their God and they will be my people. The new covenant is personal. And it's relational. The old covenant was more na national in many ways. Not that God didn't work within individuals. But now it's, it's relational with each individual. We enter into relationship, actual relationship with God. Made possible by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Made possible by the grace of God. The new covenant is a covenant of grace. Not law. A covenant where God is our God and we are His people. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That's the new covenant right there. Our entry into the new covenant was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. The new covenant means we're saved by grace through faith in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And our salvation means we enter into relationship with God. A relationship in which, uh, mark this down, we belong to Him. And therefore, our purpose becomes, is, must be to glorify Him. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, in everything 
you do. And how do we do that? Well, with this much time left, we better get to the next point. Uh, That takes us to our next, really, two points. When we, through Christ's sacrificial death for us, enter the new covenant, we become children of God, we enter into a relationship with God, but we're also servants of God. We're meant to live for His glory. And fortunately, Jesus provides the example again. That's His fifth reason for coming. As part of His obedience to God, Jesus came to serve. In Matthew's Gospel, speaking of Himself, Jesus said, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Again, in a few weeks, we'll focus on the second part of that verse. He gave His life as a ransom for many. I think we've seen some of it in in the previous point. But today I want to focus on the first half. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. That's quite an amazing statement. It was given, this statement, Jesus' words, in response to the sons of Zebedee, two of Jesus' disciples, brothers, James and John. Uh, They came to Jesus along with their mommy, and they asked a question. They said, hey, Jesus, would it be possible when you come into your kingdom, mommy's asking, by the way, (laughs) that my sons could sit at your right hand and your left in places of honor. Could you honor my boys? Isn't that typical of men and their mommies? (laughs) We're always looking out for our own, for ourselves, for our family. We're always seeking our own glory. And as might have been expected, uh, the other disciples, who apparently were listening in, uh, were not happy with this. Matthew writes, verse 24, This is prior to this, prior to Jesus' response. uh, And when the ten heard it, that is, uh, they were indignant at the two brothers. When the other ten disciples heard that James and John had brought their mom along and were asking Jesus uh, if they could have these places of honor, they were indignant. Uh, If you don't know what indignant means, it means they were ticked off. They were not happy. But Jesus called them to himself and he said... You know, well, he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. That's what James and John are seeking, these places of honor so they could be top dogs. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Wow. Jesus says that there are two ways that authority can be exercised. You can lord uh, your power and authority over your subjects. We do not need to look far to see this. We continue to see it. We've seen it throughout history, throughout our world. Great dictators, tyrants, even presidents who lord it over their subjects. But Jesus says the kingdom of God is different. Why? Because the king is himself a servant. And greatness will come to those who follow his example. Those who willingly give themselves to serving others. To the church in Rome, Paul writes, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. 
We're to serve God with passion, spiritual fervor. That word fervent here means to, 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 to be hot, to boil over. We can't serve half-heartedly. We shouldn't be satisfied with serving out of mere duty. True service comes from a heart, a transformed heart, transformed by Christ under the new covenant. And how do we serve God? When we think of service, we think of what we can do uh, to give someone else, to help someone else, to serve someone else, right? But what can we give God? How can we serve God? What can we give to a God who has, who owns everything? What can we do for God that, can't, that He cannot do much better for Himself? When we lived in Thailand, uh, uh, all over the place, our neighborhood, there would be these little miniature little temples, houses sitting on, there'd be a pole and on top would be like a round thing like this and instead of an advent thing, there'd be like a, a temple and people would just come by and leave things for the spirits, the gods of that area. You know, a little bowl of rice, a little snicker bar, maybe a Coke. Just serious, little different things. Like, I'm giving this to the gods. I mean, if your gods drink Coke, I got, you got, we got trouble. Uh, but God, our God, we know He's the owner of all things But there is an answer. What can we give God? We give God ourselves. We give Him our lives. We give Him our obedience. The only thing we have to give God is ourselves. And the only thing we can do for God is His will. We need to give ourselves completely to His service. No reservations, no holding back. And in so doing, we live a life that brings glory to God. Now, serving God who needs nothing, often takes the form of serving one another. To the Galatians, Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We're called to serve one another. Paul says we're free. We have a choice. The choice is, will you indulge your sinful nature? Will we only look out for number one? Will we claim our rights above all else? Or will we choose to serve God and one another? Will we choose to serve God through serving one another? Not serving out of duty or fear, but out of love and for God's glory. Now, serving one another, anytime you serve, there is a certain amount of humility involved, right? One can, take a certain, one can uh, take a certain sense of pride, however, in serving God. Yes, I am the Lord's servant. Amen. In the world, the one who serves is subservient, by definition, to the one he serves. The servant serves the master. The employee serves the employer. And if we're going to be subservient to anyone, you know, if I have to be under anyone. It might as well be God, the Lord of all creation. But when we're asked to serve others, other people, maybe people that are like uh, not as good as us, at least in our minds, maybe people that we don't think deserve service, uh, that's when the rubber hits the road, right? 
That's when we see what we're made of or how far we've been transformed by the, the Lord. In, in uh, 1878, when William, I was not around at this time. My parents probably were, but I was, no, just kidding. Whoa, that was low. Uh, 1878. Sorry. When William Booth's Salvation Army uh, was beginning to make its mark, men and women from all over the world began to enlist. One man who had once dreamed of becoming a bishop, a high authority in the church, he crossed the Atlantic from America to England to enlist. The Salvation Army Army initially began in London. Samuel Bringle left a fine pastorate to join uh, Booth's army. But at first, General Booth accepted his service reluctantly and grudgingly. Booth said to Bringle, you've been your own boss too long. And to instill humility in Bringle, Booth set him to work cleaning the boots of the other trainees. Discouraged, Bringle said to himself, have I followed my own fancy across the Atlantic in order to clean boots? And then, as in a vision, he saw Jesus bending over the feet of rough fishermen. Lord, he whispered, you wash their feet, I'll clean their shoes. As Samuel Bringle saw, Jesus is the example of service. He came to serve. He took the very nature of a servant. He washed feet. He fed. He taught. He got dusty and dirty. He prayed for people. And ultimately, he served by willingly giving his life as a sacrificial death on the cross. In our service to God, we need to look for ways to serve as Jesus did. Another word for uh, serve is minister. We need to minister to one another. You know, uh, that's another one of those words that it just simply means to, to meet others' needs. That's become some, you're a minister and I'm not. No, we're all ministers. We're all called by God to meet others' needs. By God's grace and power, we need to meet the physical, emotional, spiritual needs of those that God puts in our lives, that God directs us to, that God calls us to. We need to look for opportunities to share His love with others. That is true service, putting love into action. It might mean cleaning boots or toilets without grumbling. It might mean visiting someone who's sick in the hospital it might mean taking on a ministry at your church right here. It might mean sharing the gospel with someone or a, a, a zillion other things, others, other ways to serve, to minister to people. God has put us, each of us, in different places and He's given each of us different gifts. And as His body, for His glory, He's called us to serve Him by serving one another and the world around us. Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, the Alpha and the Omega, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, came to serve. Can we do any less? And as I mentioned before, the way we serve God is by doing His will. Ultimately, it's obeying Him. It's doing what we know to be His will. And again, Jesus shows us how, because our final point for today I mean, he shows us now, not because our final point, but 
And our final point today is Jesus came to do the Father's will. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is very clear in this verse and in other places that he came to do the will of the one who sent him. That is God the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He sent his son into this world. But, but why would Jesus need to say such a thing and analyze what he said? For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Isn't Jesus God? Isn't his will equal with the will of the Father? And I would answer that question based on Scripture, both yes and no. Non-committal, aren't I? No, Jesus in, let's call it, his temporal or earthly will, was not always the, his will was not always the same as the Father's. We see this clearly in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is facing the cross. He's facing death. He's facing the crucifixion. And he prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup Jesus was referring to was the cup of the cross. I believe he was specifically referring to, to the, not, not necessarily the death, the pain, the suffering, but when God poured his wrath upon Christ on the cross, when God uh, put our sin upon him, when he became sin, who knew no sin. And at that time, he cried out from the cross, Father, why have thou forsaken me? I think that was what Jesus in the garden was sweating drops of blood over. I think that's what Jesus was saying. Uh, if possible, remove this cup from me. So, so no, Jesus' will was not always the same as the Father's. But at the same time, based on this same passage, we can say yes. Jesus' is, let's call it his ultimate will, not his earthly temporal will, but his ultimate will, was always the same as the Father's. Uh, we know this because he says, not my will, but yours be done. Ultimately, Jesus wanted what the Father wanted. He knew the Father's will was always best. I'll ask God if there's any way, remove this cup, but, but ultimately I want what you want. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, but I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In his will, he said, I'm going to ultimately do the Father's will. Ultimately, Jesus' will as a man on earth, was to please his Father in heaven. You know, I don't understand everything, or maybe, maybe very little, about what happened when Jesus became a man. But as we saw last week in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus, Paul writes, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In some mysterious way, Jesus emptied himself. I believe this means he set aside not his divinity, he was always God, but his divine rights and his divine power. But you might ask, well, if he set aside his divine rights, his divine power, how did he do all those miracles? How did he teach with such wisdom and authority? How did he live a perfect, sinless life without his divine power? Well, the answer, I believe, is that Jesus fully submitted to the will of the Father. 
And to accomplish that will, Jesus fully relied not on his divine power, which he willingly emptied himself of for a time, but on the power of the Holy Spirit, of the Messiah, of Jesus. Isaiah prophesied, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. We see this prophecy fulfilled at Jesus' baptism when the Spirit descended upon him. And it's not that the Spirit wasn't with him before that, but this was the, this was the moment that God's stamp of approval on Jesus. And then following his baptism, in Luke's gospel we read, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where he was tempted. Jesus did the will of the Father, not by relying on His divine power, but by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, even though Jesus was divine, He can be our example, as we too are called to do the will of God, the will of the Father. Be ye perfect as I am perfect. How do I do that? And again, it's a process. It's the goal. It's the way we're moving. In Mark's gospel, Jesus says, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus says that we are identified with him. We, we are part of his family. You can recognize if someone's part of Jesus' family based on if they're doing the will of God or not. We must submit to the will of the Father. We must obey his commands. And like Jesus we too can accomplish this only by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus submitted to the Father 100% of the time. Jesus relied on the power of the Holy Spirit 100% of the time. And to the extent we submit to the will of the Father and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish that will, that's when we do God's will. And we're given that. We're given the Spirit. The problem is we ignore it. You know, the Spirit's saying, you know, He's saying, don't do that. Do that. And we say, mm, 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 mm. We hum really loud. We put on no, noise-canceling headphones. I don't know what we do, but, but we move in the other direction. But if we would, every time, respond correctly to the Spirit, we would see a different thing happening. I find it interesting that most, uh, most of the talk in Christian circles is about knowing God's will. How do I know God's will for my life? Who should I marry? Where should I live? What job should I take? Instead of talking about doing God's clearly revealed will found in His Word. Now, the will of God found in His Word may not always make sense to us. I mean... We may not understand why God wants us to do this or that. Why must we love our enemies? Why must we deny ourselves and take up our cross? Why must we... Why must we I could use a drink, dear. Why must we... Oh, thank you. Why must we forgive those who sin against us? That doesn't seem right. 
just doesn't make sense. Well, that's where faith and submission come into play. You know, if, if everything that we read or understood from God, hey, that makes perfect sense, let's do that. We, we wouldn't need faith. We wouldn't need this submission. We would just, you know, he's, he's, he's doing what I think he should. Let's go. We need to understand that our understanding is limited, temporal understanding. So when we come up against something that doesn't make sense to me, we need to think about that. And we need to make every prayer we say and every action we take must ultimately come, on, come from a heart that says, yet not my will, but yours be done. Our will is going to be different. I mean, think about it. If Jesus' will was different from God's at times, our will is going to be different from God's at times. Ultimately, it's a question, who are you going to trust? Jesus trusted God every time. Who are you going to trust, yourself or God? As the Proverbs tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. We must trust in the infinite. I mean, and this makes sense, by the way. Trust in the infinite, eternal creator God over our temporal, finite, limited understanding. Ultimately, we must trust his word and the power of the spirit above our human will. And we must do this with the same attitude that Jesus had. Jesus became a servant, a servant to both his father and those his father sent him to. Jesus did the will of the father. And we must do the same. And we must recognize while we are no longer under the law, under the old covenant, we are, however, under the new covenant. And in this covenant, we're bought with a price. We're servants of the living God. We're saved by grace through faith into servitude of God. And God has sent us into this world to do His will. I'd like to leave us with just an example of someone who submitted to the will of the Father. Someone who understand that she was a servant of the Lord. And when called to do something that was completely beyond her comprehension, she chose to trust the Lord instead of her own understanding. Her name was Mary, and in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, we read, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and in of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold... I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. 
Mary's obedience is one that reflects her complete trust in the Lord. Her quiet attitude of submission is astonishing considering what she's just, what's just been told her. Remember, she was not yet married to Joseph. What would he say? What would he do? Also, there was a, a death penalty for adultery. Mary couldn't be sure that she wouldn't suffer, perhaps die. But she, with little hesitation, accepted and carried out the will of God. Mary, like each of us, is an instrument of God's will on earth. So with Jesus as our example of obedience, as recipients through Christ of a new covenant of grace, of recipients of the Holy Spirit, we are now free to serve God and one another. Let us therefore pursue obedience to God's will with all of our hearts, that we too might say, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Would you pray with me to that end? Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus, that he came, he lived a sinless life, he fulfilled the old covenant, he brought us a new covenant, he served us, he did your will. Lord, that you've given us Christ, both internally to save us, Lord, and as an example of how we're to live. Father, I pray for myself and I pray for each one here that we would follow Christ's example, that we would obey you, we would serve you, we would serve those around us. We would do your will. We would do the will that, that you've clearly given to us and not worry about other things until we've accomplished what you've called us to. Lord, I put this into your hands and I trust you to continue to work in our lives. For Christ's sake, in his name, amen.